So our scripture reading from today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test that sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Adam, for reading God's word for us. And being with us this morning. Well, welcome. Uh, let me just add my welcome to, to Adams and Johns. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's great to have you with us. So glad that you um, have chosen to, to gather with us this morning. Um, whether this is your, your first time here with us or you've been coming for a long time, uh, it's just a, a delight to see each one of you, and so glad that you're here. Um, as John mentioned, we're going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and as we prepare to study 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 uh, here this morning together, I just want to pause before we begin and ask for God's help in, in understanding his word and applying it in our lives. So let's do that now, and then we'll look at this passage together. And Father in heaven, we're so thankful that, that you have given us your word, and that it is, um, that it is a treasure, Lord. Help us to to truly understand the treasure that your word is, um, to not be um, so familiar with it that we see it as commonplace. 
Um, and I ask now that by the power of your Spirit uh, dwelling uh, in us and here with us today, that you would guide us into all truth um, as we uh, listen to um, what you have to say, um, first to the Corinthian church and, and then to us through your Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves and this reality, uh, tragically, even if it sometimes humorously, uh, played itself out in the life of Kansas Cityan Tommy Morrison. And, and though born and raised in Oklahoma, uh, Tommy moved to Lenexa in the late 1980s to train as a boxer. And as a result, he became, as one reporter put it in the Kansas City Star, an adopted star in Kansas City, famous for in no particular order, uh, being a boxing champion, uh, starring in Rocky V and turning Westport bars into his playground. And when Morrison died in 2013 at age 44, the Kansas City Star published an article titled, Boxer Created His Own Reality. And it opened with these words. The reporter says, The first time I met Tommy Morrison, he told me about the time he teleported himself out of a bar. That's the humorous part. Um, the tragic part was that, if you know Tommy's story, he, he contracted HIV and was therefore unable to compete in boxing matches because of the risk of infecting others. And for the rest of his life, he, he alternated between either saying that AIDS didn't exist or that if it did exist, he never had it. But it didn't start out that way. When, when he first found out he had the disease for a while, he promoted AIDS awareness. But then one day something changed, and this is how the Star Reporter describes it. He writes, there was no other way of saying it. He created a new reality for himself. In this reality, HIV didn't exist. Or, or maybe it does, but it's not the killer the mainstream media think. Or maybe it is, but I don't have it. Never did. Failed test was all a conspiracy carried out by rivals to get him out of boxing. And those spots in his arms and hands, those aren't the symptoms of HIV lesions. Those are just dog bites or mosquito bites, even in the middle of winter. The article continues, he spoke with such conviction about HIV, the life he could have had, about everything. He spent the last years of his life fighting for his reality. The problem was Tommy's reality was no reality at all. It wasn't based in anything real. It was the product of his own self-deception. And you may be thinking, you know, I would never do anything like that. I mean, clearly this guy had just taken one too many blows to the head in his lifetime. But the thing is, the, the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. And every one of us, maybe not to this extreme, but every one of us has an ability to create our own reality, to see the world as we want to see it. None of us is immune to the danger of self-deception. And some of our self-deceptions, are they're relatively harmless, right? I mean, for example, um, this week I went to a website and with the amazing, amazing kind of facial recognition technology at Face++, um, they said that I am a dead ringer for either uh, Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm surprised you guys haven't picked up on this before. Um, I was starting to consider a side gig as a Brad Pitt impersonator, but people kept telling me something with the hair wasn't right. I, don't, I mean, I don't see it, but, um, but some of the lies 
are much more destructive, right? <laughs> you can take that down now. I mean, no, no one's going to no pay attention to seriously to the, the destructive lies with that picture up there. So uh, you can just go back to a blank, blank slide. Uh, yeah, okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, you put, line those pictures up. You can't, I mean, you can't tell a difference between... Um, no, but some of the lies are, are much more... <laughs> I mean, dead ringer. Um, no, some of the lies, they're much more serious, right? A lot more serious. Lies like, nobody cares for me. Lies like, well, I'm sure they'll get an extra little bit of money in a few months to pay off all the stuff I'm putting on the credit card. Lies like, God's okay with the, the little sins in my life. Lies like, well, I'll start taking my life seriously or my faith seriously. Well, when I graduate from high school, that's when I'll, I mean, right now I'm just going to have fun, but then I'll start taking it seriously. Or, or after college, then I'll start getting serious about it. Or when I get married or when I have kids. As one person put it, self-deception is not the worst thing but it is the means by which we do the worst things. Self-deception isn't the worst things, but it is the means by which we do the worst things, which is why Paul hits this hard at the end of chapter 3. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. And self-deception is, is one of the clearest signs of immaturity. Because at its root, immaturity is, is not knowing that you don't know. Immaturity is, is not knowing that you don't know. I mean, the, the first step toward really growing is recognizing that, that you don't know. <laughs> that you need to know, that you need to learn, that you need to grow. Because then you're in a posture where, where you're ready to say, help me, help me grow. But the, the Corinthians, they were so immature that they thought they had arrived. They thought they were mature. The most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves. The most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. And in this chapter, we're going to see three lies that, that commonly we tell ourselves. Lies that put us at risk in the lives of those that are most close to us at risk as well. The first lie is, is I'm doing okay. The, the second lie is, I'm really pretty important. And the third is, I can do whatever. So, so first, Paul's going to confront this lie of, ah, I'm okay. Second, he's going to deal with this lie of, of, I'm really important. And then third, I can do whatever. So the first lie that we tell ourselves is I'm doing okay. And, and actually, the Corinthians, they probably would have put it a little stronger. They probably would have said, look, I'm, we're doing awesome. We're amazing. But, but in our culture, we like to have a little bit more humility about it. So kind of translating, I, I, I'm doing okay. You see, they thought they had arrived, that they had it all together. But really, they were more immature than ever. If you look at verses 1 through 4 at the beginning of the chapter, this is what Paul says. He says, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And he says, even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. And we're going to get to in a minute what this idea of flesh and spirit mean. He says, for a while there is, je- for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Not, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? And, and this immaturity, it was leading to jealousy. It was leading to strife. It was leading to conflict. You see, they thought that they were smarter, more mature than, than everyone else. But the reality was they're, they're infants, they're babies. And Paul contrasts spiritual people with fleshly people. The idea here is that when you become a Christian, that is when you place your faith and your trust and confidence in, in Jesus as the one true God and Savior, that, that something actually happens in that moment. That you're actually, that you're transformed. That you were dead, but you're made alive. And the flesh represents that old dead part of us. And the problem was, is that even though the Corinthians had undergone this transformation, they had stepped over this line into light from darkness, they had come from death to life, it wasn't making any difference in their lives. I mean, it's like this, imagine that you are poor and that you're in debt. And some of you are thinking, Bill, I don't have to imagine that at all. I'm, I'm right there with you. Imagine you're poor and you're in debt. And someone hands you a check and says, here, this is a check. It's going to cover all of your debt and it's even going to set you up well for all your living expenses. And you take that home, check home, you stick it on the refrigerator, you have it, but you never cash it, you never deposit it. You have the reality, it's there in your life, but you, you're not doing anything with it. It's not doing any transforming work. And, and that's what's happening in Corinth. That's what happens so often in, in our lives. You see, Paul had expected them to grow, to see them applying the gospel in every corner and cabinet and drawer of their lives. But instead, it sort of remained kind of safely confined in the foyer of the house. So, so it looked really good when you first walked in, and, and the Corinthians had a lot going for them. But as soon as you got deeper into the house, it was an utter mess. We, we all have spaces like that in our houses, don't we? Where, where, whether it's the, the garage or that spare bedroom or the basement or that storage closet, that's, it's always an utter mess, right? And you, the rest of the house can be clean, but you're never going to let, don't let the guests see the basement or don't, don't let them in the guest bedroom because it's always a mess. They, they thought they were mature, but they were acting like infants. You know, they think they've got the meat of the Christian life, but Paul says he still has to give them milk. Now, this metaphor of meat and milk, it's, it's really interesting. We've we got to be careful. We don't miss what Paul is saying here. Because when Paul writes that he gave them milk, not solid food, and that they're still not ready for solid food, what he isn't saying is that there is the gospel, which is sort of the milk, and then there's something beyond the gospel that's the solid food. We never get beyond the gospel. We never get beyond the gospel. So what, what Paul is saying is that they haven't even grasped the most basic core truth of the gospel, much less its comprehensive outworking into every part of their lives. Commentator David Garland explains it this way. I think this is really helpful. He says, Therefore, they, the Corinthians, do not need a change of diet, but a change of perspective. Just as only the mature recognize the foolishness of the gospel to be the highest wisdom, so only the mature recognize this milk to be solid food. 
It's not that Paul cannot or does not give them wisdom in the form of solid food. It is that they do not recognize that what he gives them is wisdom. You see, they have deceived themselves into thinking that that they are these uber-spiritual people when in reality they are anything but. And they are living their lives as exactly if the gospel had never changed anything in them. As if God hadn't entered the world, if Jesus hadn't died on the cross and rose again and changed everything. But again, I mean, doesn't this sound familiar in our own lives? And this is the reality that we face so often. And then Paul highlights here a couple of symptoms of of how do you see this immaturity work itself out in your lives? And there's lots of ways, but he highlights two. He highlights sort of this idea of jealousy and then of strife. And jealousy in this, it's an internal symptom. And jealousy in this context is, is feeling or showing envy of someone's achievements or advantages. I mean, if you've ever gotten frustrated at a colleague's promotion rather than celebrating, if you've ever assessed someone's prowess by their possessions, then you know jealousy well. And remember, people were coming to Corinth to make a name for themselves. It was a, it was a new upstart city. It was a people, a place where you could come and, and build a reputation. A place where the down and out could be the up and coming. And old habits and old desires die hard, and oftentimes they follow us as we follow Christ. And the second is strife, which is much more external. See, in the Corinthian Christians, they didn't even see this coming, but as jealousy sort of boiled over, it became strife, open conflict with one another, and factions. It was causing divisions. People were even trying to use the different teachers that they aligned with to sort of jockey for position. Well, I follow Paul. He, he was the one who first brought us the gospel. Well, no, no, I follow Paul. He's a way better speaker than Paul. I mean, are you seriously still listening to Paul? And there's also a possibility here that these allegiances, and this is really interesting, had to do with, with racial or ethnic identities. So, so Paul was Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. So you could imagine those who were Roman citizens saying, well, I follow Paul because he's a Roman citizen too. Those who were Greeks saying, well, I follow Paulus. I mean, he's one of us. Those who were Jews saying, well, I follow Cephas. I mean, he, he's one of our people. In the Lego movie, if you've seen it, it opens with the, the song, Everything is Awesome, right? Everything is awesome. But the whole... Pre- <laughs> yeah, I mean, all right. <laughs> Silas knows the movie. Um, but the whole premise of the movie, if you've seen it, it's a world of deception, right? It's not real. Lord Business wants you to think everything is awesome, but it isn't. We lie to ourselves, and maybe we don't say, I'm awesome or everything is awesome, but we say, I'm doing okay. We say, I'm doing okay. But the truth is that God expects you to grow, to develop, to mature. You see, when we say, I'm doing okay, what we're really conceding is that I don't really need to change that much. I'm doing just fine the way I am. Why is this lie so dangerous? Because if you think you don't need to grow, you're never going to grow. If you don't think you need this, it's never going to happen. But every one of us, myself included, maybe myself primary, 
have rooms and hallways and drawers in our lives that need the light of the gospel and all of its massive implications shine brightly into them to transform them. This means at least two things. I mean, first it means we need to ever be increasingly familiar with the gospel. We never get beyond the gospel, so we need to know it more and more and how it speaks into all of life, how it touches everything. And a great place to start thinking about this, there's a little paper called The Centrality of the Gospel by Pastor Tim Keller. If you just Google that, The Centrality of the Gospel, and if you, if you want to pull out your smartphone and do it right now, I won't, I won't be uh, offended. Great article that helps understand how does the gospel, this core to the gospel, touch every part of our lives. Second, it means we need to also become ever more familiar with ourselves and where we tend to lie to ourselves. Ask yourself, what aspects of my life, my work, my relationships, my family, etc., haven't been affected by the gospel? What are those drawers, what are those closets in your life where you say, I just, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to clean this up. I don't want to, I don't want to look at that. And what would it look like to start growing in those places? Like, what's one concrete step I could take tomorrow, today even, to open up that closet, open up that drawer, and start working and the first step might just be realize I'm, I'm actually not doing okay. That there is work to be done. Coming to that place in your life, that's, and that's evidence of the gospel at work. But the lies we tell ourselves, they don't stop there. They don't stop with just, I'm doing okay. What we see when we look at verses 5 through 9 is that we also tell ourselves a second lie. And that's the lie that, that I think I'm pretty important. This is what Paul writes. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He is the one who plants. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And again, remember the the Corinthians, they had chosen up sides and divided themselves into camps around teachers, Apollos, Paul, Cephas, others. And and this was an issue that Paul raised way back in chapter 1, verse 11. So he's been building an argument, and this passage here is really the culmination of that argument for, for why this doesn't make any sense. He says, we tend to think that we're pretty important. But really, we're just servants working for the one who really is important. I mean, as people, we tend to love hierarchies, right? We, we want to know where we fit in the org chart. We love to draw distinctions between the important work and the menial tasks. But Paul goes after the root of this lie with a metaphor of farming. Paul and Apollos, they're simply farmhands. They're just doing the work that God has assigned them to do. Paul planted the seeds of the gospel. Apollos nurtured them. He watered them. But the only way the gospel flourished, took root, did any of its work in the lives of the people at Corinth and our lives is that God is at work. He's the one who ultimately matters. And this is the way that God works in the world to bring the gospel and through his providential care to provide for all of our needs in the world, right? I mean, think about this. Think about how God provides for you clothing or food we say as Christians, yeah, God is providing these things for us, but how does that actually happen? 
I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of people involved in growing grain or cotton, people harvesting and processing those materials, people designing machines and equipment to do that work, people creating logistics systems to move those goods, marketers, store owners providing a place for those goods to be sold, for us to be aware of them. You see, in the church and in all of life, Sunday and Monday, God has designed for us to work together in cooperation for the mutual benefit of one another. But he's the one who's responsible for it all. And and now in employing this farming metaphor, Paul is in no way diminishing his authority as a teacher or Apollos' authority as a teacher. He's saying, look, look, we're still teachers called by God to teach you the gospel. What he's doing is he's lowering their status. Paul recognizes that like Master Jesus, he is to be last and servant of all. And this also ought to give us renewed hope and confidence as we share our faith with others at work, at school, in our neighborhood, because ultimately God is the one responsible for making the gospel flourish in their lives. And therefore, there's no room for pride or despair. If, if God is at work, then great, he gets the glory. If, if we don't see things happening, then ultimately we don't despair because we know he's at work and will do what he wants. We deceive ourselves thinking that we are pretty important. But the truth is, God is the one who's really important. And when we really begin to understand this and let us shape it, two things happen. We experience an incredible freedom and a deep joy. Freedom because we no longer have to bear the responsibility that isn't ours and and never could be of running and saving the world. If if that's what you're feeling this morning, let me just lift that weight from you. (laughs) That's God's work. And joy because we get to be used by those who, by the one whose responsibility actually is. And he gets the glory and we get the joy. And this is why the lie that we are pretty important is is so dangerous because it's a self-deception that that steals the credit that rightly belongs to God. And it robs us of the joy of being servants. However, through the cross, we learn to give to God what is rightfully his. And we, in turn, receive joy everlasting. We are free to enjoy things that aren't about us, to enjoy things and people for themselves, not as a way of of getting our identity or advancing our career or building our glory. But there's one more lie that threatens to undermine our joy and growth in Christ. And that is the lie that, that I can do I can do whatever. I mean, this is the lie that says when it comes to God's work, if he's the one who called me, whether it's at my school or in my home, the office, job site, in the church, it doesn't really matter how hard I work because it's ultimately up to him and, and he'll pick up the slack. I can just do whatever. And this is where Paul introduces the metaphor of a building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, this is verse 10, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. And then he says, let each one take care how he is building it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one does, each one's work will become manifest for the day, this is the day where God is coming back, 
and will judge the world. For in that day we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, what we do and how we do it really does matter. But it isn't just a matter of God doing something or us doing something. It's both. Look back at verse 10. Look at what Paul says. He says, according to the grace that he's received, so that's God's work, it's his gift. So according to the grace, I laid a foundation. That's Paul's grace-fueled effort. Grace and skill, grace and effort, grace and careful, passionate quality. The foundation is Christ. I and mean, we always are first responding to what God has done for us. The foundation has been laid in Jesus Christ crucified. So, so the work is not driven by guilt, it's driven by gratitude. But it's important to recognize too here that the work that Paul's talking about here, this isn't limited to the work of pastors and teachers. We have kind of this responsibility for building up the church because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we'll get to later on, Paul says over and over again, every person, every Christian has been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. He says it probably four times. Every spiritual gift is given for the building up of the church, which means that all of us have a responsibility for building ourselves and one another up in the gospel. You see, we are all building up or tearing down the church, ourselves and one another. We're responsible not just for our own maturity, but for those in our church family. We are responsible for building one another up. So how are we doing? How are you building? It, it matters. It, does what we are building in one another correspond to, is it in line with the gospel? And Paul tells us here there's, there's two ways to build on the foundation of Christ. There's one, it's gold, silver, precious stones, or with wood, straw, hay. The materials we build with matter because no matter how beautiful something looks, if it's made out of the wrong materials and it won't hold up in a fire, it's useless in the end. I actually recently read an article uh, about the Boston Fire Department and it was highlighting the fact that fewer, about f- maybe 5% of the calls for service to the Boston Fire Department are now for actual fires. 95% of the work that they do is not related to putting out like house and building fires. And, and part of the reason for that, a big part of the reason for that is that we've just gotten way better at building buildings. It's a lot harder for them to catch on fire. We're building with better materials certainly than 50 or 100 years ago. So what are we building with? What are the materials? Paul says our work will be tested by fire. The poor building materials are consumed and destroyed. But what's interesting is that the quality building materials, not only do they survive the fire, but they're actually enhanced by the testing Gold and silver are, are enhanced, purified by fire. 
Paul Ben makes the point that we collectively together are God's temple. He calls us the temple, the body of Christ. We, the people of the church, not this physical structure, but you and I, the people of the church, are the place where God's presence dwells. And those who do shoddy workmanship or worse seek to destroy it will face grave consequences. And Paul writes in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Those yous are collective, not just you individually, but us together. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, we lie to ourselves and we say, I can do whatever. It doesn't really matter that much. The truth is, though, that God will be the judge. Everything counts, everything matters. The work that you do and how you do that work really matters on Sunday and on Monday. And God's not just going to see, he's not just going to evaluate when you served in Sunday school or how many times you came to church or or what you did at the, the charity fundraiser. He's evaluating everything that you do, all of your work. It matters to him. So what are you building with? Why is this lie so dangerous? Well, self-deception divides the sacred and secular, divides God's people in the process. Through the cross, we come to see that everything we have is in the service of God, what we do on Sunday and on Monday. We all must be constantly aware of the lie that says, just do whatever, take the easy path, it doesn't really matter. Because the sobering and glorious truth is that it all matters. It matters more than we know. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wow, it's sobering. It might feel a little overwhelming, impossible, maybe a little bit scary. But the good news, the good news that frees us from our self-deception, enables us to grow up, enables us to experience a life of self-forgetful joy, enables us to build something that will last is this. Jesus the God-man, God become human, was destroyed. He was unmade on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness and be remade. That, that what that is true of us is now what was in that video. We have a new identity that we are beloved sons and daughters, and we can stay with life-giving joy and hope the words of the hymn, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. I love how the hymn ends. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, Jesus says, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. The gospel is not just milk. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. It's the everything. It's the beginning and the end. Let it speak into every corner, drawer, closet of your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the gospel. Would we come to see it as the solid food that it is? And that it would nourish us, that it would heal us, that it would transform us, that it would give us great joy and you great glory. Pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as the temple.
Amen.